The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Uh, are we actually recording this? Have we started? We are, we, we, we've been oh recording God. for a couple of <laughs> oh minutes God, now. it's live. Um, all right. Welcome to episode four? Four. Four. Four of the uh, Ascent of Board Games. Um, so I'm Brian and these are other people. Yep. Yeah. Other people are definitely who should, there. Who should maybe introduce nope. themselves. Sounds, hint, like, hint. sounds like a lot of work. That was Joe. <laughs> all, right, so. <laughs> all right. So this is Michael Hampt. Jason Warend. Joe Streaky. And Frank Branham. Hooray. Let's talk about this past weekend. Yes, let's talk about the fun things that some people have gotten to do. Not Watching Brian not Brian. play games is very fun for all of us. <laughs> so, uh, yes, we were all at a convention called the Oasis of Fun this past weekend. Located um, here in Atlanta, yep, Georgia. Yep, lovely convention put on by Richard Bethany and company. I unfortunately had to spend most of the weekend playing the game of Implement 3 customers at the same time when you're supposed to be on vacation. It's long, it's stressful, I don't recommend it. I did get some games in. I got to learn Hyperborea, which is... Did you? Um, <laughs> did you? So far as that game can be learned, I, I like played mortals? through a game of it to reach a point that we decided to call the end. I mean, Frank we, assures me it's easy. We definitely... I heard there were ghosts in that game. <laughs> There, there may have been. We never saw there any. Was a it's weird. I can confirm that. <laughs> we definitely played a game with the components of Hyperborea. I got to play Altiplano, which I kind of liked, and virtually no one else did, and that's fine. I thought it was fine. It was. It was. It's. It overstayed its welcome with four players. Yes. Yeah, that game was definitely fun for about the first two hours. From what I've heard, right, it plays better with less people. I feel like right, that because like be you're just not like. But I was lucky enough to win a copy of it. They had at the uh, play to win table at Oasis, so that was that was fun. That proved irony wasn't dead, yeah, along so, with my other victory. So yeah, and, and Joe promptly handed it to me and said, "Get this away from me." Well, listen, I, I would play it again. I would not play it with four people though, because I think that caused the game to be too long, and especially a lot of the really analytical folks that we sometimes game with. Yes, I actually kind of wanted one. So. <laughs> well, we can, we right can work something out. I do have a copy that is likely to not see much play. Yeah, so um, that's most of the time. Oh, uh, I did get to play, we all got to play, uh, except possibly Jason, the new edition of History of the World. Yes, which that was actually I really quite good. Like. Actually, I Frank, really you weren't it. in no, on that either. No, no, I really no. liked it. I really liked yeah, the new edition. I think that's a game like Fury of Dracula where every edition has made it a little bit better. Yeah, no, well, I like the new edition. And what's surprising about that game is it, it didn't make any big changes, but the one that changed No, it made it, one really big change. It did. It doesn't sound big. It's just changing a number. The, and yet. <laughs> the changes it make, I think, add a lot of balancing that that game really needed, mm -hmm. um, especially for newcomers to the original game if there are certain things that you don't know exist within the game you are definitely not going to win so and what I did they it... nerf roman or britain uh they didn't nerf either of them they what? they buffed some of the lesser ones right but they, they also they also off. changed the places where they position so there's only there's one less age and so rome is now at the end of the age 
instead of the, towards the wow. beginning of the age, which has okay. a huge effect on how powerful they are. Also, but, there's a lot more sieves in each age, so yeah. there's a number of them that are not going to be in play at any given time. Yeah. Ooh, pretty. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crap. Uh, I'm going to have to buy that one, too. Yeah. <laughs> it was, like, I thought, and all the components are really, really nice, so, like, I was really impressed with the yeah. Oh, up no. no. For the <laughs> listeners in the know, Japan now has a boat in the ocean. It's Japan crazy. is less terrible. Yeah. Yeah, all in all, I, I liked all the changes they made. They they simplified some of the components. They get, got rid of like weaponry and leaders, right? Because that was kind of not. I mean, they're still in the deck, but you don't. They're still in the deck, but them. you don't always have them, right? Like they're age one events as opposed to being you, everyone has them. So now I did really like the new components. I mean, those things look really nice, and they're much easier to see on the board. Yeah, yeah, they're gorgeous. Sorry, Frank, we're making you buy a, a single board game. Boo-hoo. Yes, I know that's never happened to you before. How will you ever find the space? Yeah, that, I really like that. I'm looking forward to playing it again. Uh, and with it being only four ages, the game is shorter, which is, I think, kind of nice. Like, it was a little long. When we played it, when we played the original version a couple of weeks ago, I was like, man, this this game's a little long. So getting rid of one age will help a lot So now History that. of the World is briefer than Brief History of the World. Exactly. Weird. Now, one of my favorite games that we played there was Temporum, which was made by the same guy uh, who Donald did Vaccarino. Donald Vaccarino. Of, uh, of Dominion fans. Vaccarino. No, he's still Vaccarino as far as I know. <laughs> oh, okay. So this is a game all about manipulating time travel to, I'm just going to say, become the king of the future. Sure. Sounds good. Yeah. What's it called again? The, the, the Temporum. The way you win is by moving all of your pieces from age one, which is ancient history, to age four, which is the future. The, the best age. Yes, age the of cats. Best, the age of cats. Actually, uh, <laughs> or the, I, I the think robot. I won that one by becoming uh, the Lord of the Robot Uprising. Yes, but, uh, you did. You did. Um, but this game, it, it works on a, a pretty simple turn. It, uh, at the beginning of your turn, you can decide whether to manipulate time, uh, which is in essence swinging a... Uh, pendulum token from one course of history to the other course of history. Uh, and the board kind of forms a pyramid of possible histories. And so after you manipulate or not manipulate, you can travel back to any point within the actual history. And this yeah. is going to get really complicated. Yeah, it's, it's hard to travel. explain without a diagram. But it, in essence, the further back in history you go, the more control you have over the state of the board. But it looked to me like the less ability you had to move your pawns towards the goal. Yeah, I think it's very well balanced. I mean, the neat thing about it is that we only played with one set of cards. Basically, in any given game, there's one card in age one, two in the next, and four in the next. You know, there's a lot of different cards for each age, so each each age is going to have a very sort of different feel and setup to it. It looks interesting. I'm I'm keen to play it again. It certainly has a lot of replayability. I mean, we we saw what six cards out of the the stack of cards that we were <laughs> when we were setting up. I feel like it was more than that, but yeah, like it was it was a fascinating game that I'm excited to try again. Yeah, it definitely looks like there's a lot of there's a lot of game in the box. A good time traveling board game. I'm purchasing it literally right now. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. You've saved yeah, I still me need so to play mine. You also said that a Black Orchestra was good. Yeah, that's true. That's another one we played. It's the uh, Frank is apparently not a fan. No, 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 no. Black Orchestra is a game that comes down to shooting Hitler in the face. Essentially, you have two shots to make this die roll, where you have a five percent chance. 
Not if you set it up right, man. We we were in pretty good <laughs> oh, shape. Oh yes, I plan to get uh, thrown in the prison. In yes, the yes, he came out. Of, he literally came out of prison, saw Hitler there, and shot him. So, so. for for those of you that don't know, Black Orchestra is a cooperative. Uh, board game in which you are playing the actors within the Operation Valkyrie, whose mission was to assassinate Hitler. Um, ultimately, they were unsuccessful. You're basically trying to work together to assassinate Hitler. And to do that, you have to a generate yourself a plan, get all of the things that necessary to execute that plan. But you also have to balance the fervor in which your characters are dedicated to the cause while also manipulating the suspicion that the government has on your characters. So there's, it's a delicate balancing act. It seems really hard. (laughs) And you also have to manage how popular Hitler is at any given time. (laughs) Yes. Yes. But it's also educational for people who care about that kind of thing. I mean, you get a lot of the history of the actual people within the the Wehrmacht and the German society who wanted to take Hitler out. And, you know, most of the event cards in the game are based on real things that happened. And it's got some bits where you can, you know, if your character is not sufficiently motivated to go through this dangerous plot to kill Hitler, you can actually go visit Auschwitz to improve your motivation to kill him, which is a little intense. But um, it's, it's an interesting game. There is certainly a certain amount of, we may not make this, we may lose the game on this roll, but we've got to try, which is a little bit annoying from a gamer standpoint, but at the same time, I think it's not inappropriate for the theme. Well, it also adds, I think, a good tension to that game. Cause like when we played through one of the first cards that we drew was just shoot Hitler in the head. And we're like, <laughs> which is okay, one of the great. simpler plans. <laughs> we're going to go do that. But as it turns out, like, you have to be, like, fully dedicated. You have to have Hitler alone. Like, there's all these things. So as we're playing the game, we're getting all the things we need for that. And we found another plan, which was to basically put a bomb on Hitler's airplane. And so we're like, okay, cool. If this fails, we've got our backup plan. And, like, if both of those fails, then, yeah, we probably lost the game. But it was really fascinating to work together to get that condition set up. And I think that's where the fun of the game is. So it felt good in play? Like, you felt like you were doing the thing the board game is modeling? Yeah, and, like, I'm all about theme, which... Is kind of weird because I also have a soft spot for uh, Freedom the Underground Railroad, which is another like co-op historically accurate game. Well, historically accurate for as much as these things can be, where you are all players in the Underground Railroad trying to get slaves from the southern states up into Canada. And I'm like, man, this would make like a great history lesson for like a high school class. Yeah, but to be fair to Frank, I think we really lucked out since we had oh, we someone who's already in the military, did. someone who's already uh, zealous. <laughs> we found the weapons immediately. I had already had the badge. It was literally like, okay, as long as I'm not in prison, he's pretty much dead. Right, but and the funny thing is, is what the game doesn't show us is like, as soon as you pulled that trigger, your character was pretty much just killed. That's why you have to be a fanatic to do it. Yeah, in my case, it came down to while we were playing basically realizing that as we were playing, okay, we've got maybe a five or six percent chance to kill because I can calculate odds because I'm a freak. Oh, and then, okay, how do we increase that? Because no, we're not going to make it. There's no way. And then realizing there's not a way we can increase it. We just have to take that shot. Yeah. We, we, and then we line got, up for a second one. Yeah. Yeah. We, we got lucky with some cards that brought down his military support at a key time. One of the oh, things yeah. that we, after we finished playing the game, we went through the event deck cause it's, you know, staged totally. and it's fascinating cause as the war progresses, his popularity starts tanking cause the war is getting long, you know, it's taking And it longer. turns out he's terrible at commanding. Yeah. yeah that too. 
we I don't know how to is it shrill Shrillastilla. Shrillastilla. Oh dear God. <laughs> that was that was how we how 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 I started playing anyway because I got there a little later than everybody else. Essentially, it's a it's an entirely German game where you're trying to predict the top <laughs> the top Billboard charts for a whole bunch of random. Nonsense, I do like that uh, game. German bands. Oh no, it's not the top Billboard. It's the top sixteen. Fourteen. 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 <laughs> Germans are weird. Real weird <laughs> random number. Yeah, that one's a lot of fun. I think we're going to talk about that one later on in, in our Great Gimmicks episode because the way they do the sort of voting that controls how bands move is just a fascinating mechanism that mm-hmm. is going to be very difficult to describe in an audio-only podcast. But As you know. long as you're withdrawing the, the palette fast but not too fast. Right, exactly. <laughs> there, were some, there were some technical difficulties at some point during the I think game. Sean's version is just defective in some way. Yes, I mean, mine doesn't have that problem. Well, and what's really fascinating about that game is, like, mechanically, it's not a great game. No. But it is hella fun to play. Yeah, it's a, it's a great exercise in groupthink and predicting what other people are going to do and yep. complaining when they did the wrong thing compared to what you thought they were going to do. Yeah, I think the game I played most was a game called Space Base, which uh, feels like Machi Koro, if that, that kind of settlers roll dice, everyone grabs their resources. But Space Base is by the designer who gave us Mystic Veil and Edge of Tomorrow and will give us Edge of Tomorrow at some point. Uh, and it's really good. Um, we've kind of become addicted to Space Base. So Sean, I mean, sorry, Frank, that's his name, introduced me to uh, Escape the Dark Castle, which I really like. <laughs> it's uh, it's a functionally a paragraph game on cards. And it the artwork is really nice. Now, Frank, is this the one that you defined as the my first paragraph paragraph game yeah totally it's absolutely my first paragraph. <laughs> is this yeah, the one that's it. got a kickstarter up right now for an expansion yes yeah okay I, I know it. i know exactly what you're talking about Do it. <laughs> yeah. the, the artwork in it was really nice i don't feel the need to own it but the artwork no no, no. Really I, th- nice. I thought the stories in the artwork were cool uh, i mean functionally the game is basically a series of battles in which you try and roll the right dice there's yep. a little bit of tactical element when to fight and when to hang back and try and when and to deal. use your stuff and right yeah. yeah but i mean i i thought it was neat I, I get like joe i would play it but i don't feel a strong need to own it the big advantage is it's 30 minutes sure there's yeah, a lot really to be said for short that. it's really punny. and the artwork is really nice yeah. how many does it play four the other game I played was uh, Outlive, which is a kind of a fallout shelter theme kind of thing. It is worker placement on top of worker placement. <laughs> so, yeah, it has two forms of workers going around grabbing stuff and building your little fallout shelter and post-apocalyptic. It's also got, well, I have the deluxe edition. So mine has all the plastic ammo circuit board and <laughs> giant plastic meat markers. <laughs> The other one you showed us with uh, Escape from the Dark Tower was Forest of Fate. I, I quite like that one. It's another yeah, short sure. paragraphy game that seems to have a lot more variety in stuff. I mean, it's still fundamentally, you know, uh, you're making some decisions. And if you have the right skills, you do well. It is definitely carved from the Tales of the Arabian Night yep, mold, absolutely. but cooperative and, again, really short, 30 minutes. I do love Arabian Nights. Is, well, is it when... as random? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Can I become a married monkey? That uh, not, not, not that random. <laughs> married monkey Sultan. Yeah, Gender swap. <laughs> a female married monkey Sultan. Yeah, yeah. Frank actually introduced us to the number. The mind. The mind. The mind. The mind. Yes. That was an experience. I was not sold on it when I first heard about it because I've been hearing about this game for a while. Playing it is a completely different experience. It's essentially a deck of, was it, 100 cards, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, everyone's dealt a certain number of cards every round. And then without communicating or speaking to each other, you have to communally play the lowest numbered card that everyone has. And if, if someone has a lower card in their hand when you do that, 
you lose a life, right? Yeah. What was super fascinating, I felt like, is every time we had a miss, the two numbers that were a miss were really close together within one or two. So it definitely felt like we were doing some level of communication. Except for Mike. Yeah, there, there's like Mike. a weird progression of I watching was in people. brains. Thank mm-hmm. you. Yeah, kind of like like you, Jason, when I first read about the game, I was like, well, that sounds stupid. <laughs> and then actually, I'm like, huh, this is actually, I think I'd classify it as an activity more than a game, but it's still really interesting. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely compelling, I think. Yeah, it's fascinating. And one of the more, I mean, marked, if it doesn't win Spiel des Jahres, something's wrong. Because it's <laughs> so unique, so innovative, a breeze to teach. And it did give me a a kind of feel of, like, the Hanabi strand of games, where it's like, how, I can't even possibly imagine how this would work, but oh my god, it does. Mm-hmm. Like, it was really good. I do <laughs> want to play some more Hanabi. I really like Hanabi. Oh, yeah. What else? Uh, I We played Bunny Kingdom. I really liked Bunny Kingdom. That game was full of random, and it was adorable. It was like, delightful. It, it was had, delightful. It has a great art aesthetic that really is, like, colorful and childish, and it was a delight. And I think the best part about that game were all of the meeples that you put out are tiny little bunny meeples. And by the time you look at it, you're like, God, I've multiplied all over this place like bunnies. Weird. We played a massive game of Elder Tor because yeah. I yeah. like Elder Tor. Yeah. Elder Tor is good. I, I played oh. most of it. <laughs> then I went to work. Uh, you died, so it's fine. Uh, fine. <laughs> yeah, we, we should have lost that one. It looks oh, like. it was close. I've it never was seen really that close. many portals it open was, at the same time. It was very front-loaded. Yeah. Also, Mike and I got to play Swords, Sword and Sorcery. I really enjoyed that I game. I really liked it, too. That was yeah. a, It's a solid adventure games, and adventure games hold a special place in both mine and Joe's <laughs> That heart. is correct. The place is different. <laughs> that place is very different. Um, I look forward to playing more of it. Yeah, that was a solid game. Its rulebook is dense. Oh, gosh, so dense. Highly recommend just go find a how-to play video because, yeah. And 54 pages. So, yeah, it's Yeah, we, 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 we decided, hey, let's just sit down and figure this out. And it was, we got... 80 percent of the rules right the first time that's a pretty good yeah, we ratio did, we that's did about good. where we were on uh, on hyperborea i think you're I think. being generous <laughs> i'm a very generous guy but no, I've, I've ordered some of the expansions that are coming out in july and then in august Ooh, so I'm, I'm looking excited. forward to that yeah so today's episode is going to be a little bit different i mean we've only done four episodes they're all a little bit different but mostly in the past we've tried to take a, a game mechanic or a concept and sort of trace its evolution through history our topic today is sort of non-Yahtzee dice games. There, there are a lot of dice games out there that have sort of that Yahtzee-esque mechanic. And there's just a lot of very different things here. So this is going to be much less of an evolution and more of a, here are some games that do interesting things with dice that we want to talk about. Yeah, and like some of them involve rolling dice. Some of them don't involve rolling dice. So it's kind of interesting. And, mm-hmm. and we're definitely going to put them in chronological order for Ish. you. Mostly. Or it's Mostly. an excuse for us to talk about too many bones. Also, yes. <laughs> I mean, that's fine. I mean, yes, like, exactly. it's just a true statement. Yeah. First up should probably be uh, Das Spiel, which is definitely my fault. This is a 1980 edition Pearl Hoon, Frangios, and Cosmos, uh, designed by, uh, sort of designed by Reinhold Wittig and a lot of other people. So with Das Spiel, you have to kind of understand Reinhold Wittig. He does games called spiel art game art and he's a world traveler he'll wander around collect bits from other countries bizarre mechanics stuff them in these giant gorgeous red tubes with vinyl mats 
and make crazy, crazy games. I've got a decent sized collection. The Spiel <laughs> originally shipped as a triangle board where you can turn dice up on their corners, kind of, if you just imagine sitting a dice on a corner, and then build a giant pyramid out of the 264 odd dice that come with the game. Except that very first edition of uh, Das Spiel basically didn't come with rules. Uh, you got, a, as part of your purchase, a subscription to a quarterly magazine of rules and games that people had sent in, some of which were designed by Reinhold Wittig, but the later editions come with uh, 50 to 60 games. Now, I actually really like that concept of like, here is a box of components and every month we're just going to send you some rules. And hey, if you think of some, some a game that you want to create out of these components, send it in and we'll freaking mail it out to people. Yeah, it's like an early predecessor of the um ice the house pyramids ice house the, stuff, yeah, yeah. totally. That or peace conceptually pack. is I think really cool, especially for like amateur game designers. Like that's a great place to start if you're ever interested in making a game. And I like, I like both of the games that we played, right? So Brian and I played like an area control game functional using the dice and then we played a a different kind of area control game where dice couldn't touch each other as a group, which I thought was also pretty fun. The games in Dustbeal aren't amazing. I think it's a very tactile kind of thing because you are building a giant pyramid out of several hundred dice. It's very physically satisfying to put that together. The components are great. Yeah. It's funny when you're trying to position, especially in the, the, I got to play in the second game that Joe was talking about where the dice couldn't, uh, different colors couldn't touch each other. And it's, I had to keep rotating the pyramid to try and figure it out three-dimensionally because, like, I'm bad at that to begin with. But it, it's it's a different type of gameplay than I'm used to. Uh, yeah, I want to build on that because, like, one thing I noticed in that game was, like, my brain does not register dice as being upended on their corners. So, like, thinking about, okay, if I put this dice here, what all is that going to touch? And it it took a minute to get that into your head. And so as you're playing... I would put something down. I'd be like, oh, no, shit. I just broke like eight rules there. <laughs> Some of the games go on really weird. There's dexterity games. Uh, he, they suggest playing a game where you build a pyramid, followed by a game that involves tearing down a pyramid. Mm-hmm. It's efficient. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, like the 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 first game that I brought in and I played, it was like the you score points for faces on the outside of the pyramid that were your color. And like it was very satisfying to see the pyramid fully build up when we were doing some research this game won the 1980 spiel the rs for most beautiful game yep and i mean i i think i have to agree with that because when we were playing this territory control game where the red and green dice could not touch each other anytime you could not make a viable play you had to add a black die to separate them which adding that black die created new plays for the next person And when we were done, we had this pyramid that was beautifully marbled between like red, green with a black dividing line. And you could deconstruct it and see that marbling effect all the way through. Like it was a very pretty game to look at as we were building. it. And that particular game was called Fire and Water. So there you go. Considering that it's just a bunch of like brightly colored dice and a triangle holder for them. It's surprising. Yeah, very, very cool. And I'm I'm glad you shared it with us, Frank. (laughs) I think the next one we wanted to talk about was another one that Frank brought because Frank has a marvelous collection of, of weird and esoteric games called Tumble and Dice, which was officially released in 2004 uh, by Carrie Grayson, Randy Nash, and Rick Soed. And it's functionally sort of a 
shuffleboardy type of thing. It's with a dice. definite shuffleboard thing yeah. going. Yeah. Basically, there's you're you're, you're rolling your dice from a, a sort of lawn chair. It's a it's a very large, impressive looking wooden board with pegs and different scoring zones on it. And basically, you need to try and get the dice of your color to a higher multiplier area, which of course is farther down the board and harder to control. And it's basically the value you roll multiplied by the the area of the board you're on. And you can knock people off the board. And there's like a, a very small, very high multiplier thing right at the edge, which is easy to knock people off of. It's a bag full of random, you know, certainly there are probably people who are really good at it. I'm not one of those people. And it seems like it would take a lot of time to acquire a very no, specialized skill. It's a pretty light game. You don't get significantly better. Okay. Part, of the, part of the genius of the design there is the fact that you're using dice. Yeah, you're flicking dice. They're a few games where you flick dice but in particular each stage of the board is like tiered with a drop-off that's almost the height of the die so the dice actually flip and go through some pretty complicated physics and shots it is very random it, even if you're good at dexterity those that screws with your shots but it's a really exciting short punchy table game that tore through our various gaming groups uh at the time just as a starter, because it's like five minutes. Yeah, and uh, the game is, like you said, just it's basically shuffleboard with a random number generator on top. Because even if you are the most amazing dice flicker in the world, you could roll nothing but ones and lose the game. So who cares? And it doesn't overstay its welcome. It really does play in five minutes. And then it's like, great, I lost, but I had a ton of fun doing it. So... So the next one on the list is one that um, I really enjoy. I know some of the other folks here aren't as keen on it, but it's Macau. Which it's is fine. It. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that, Joe. Macau, a Stefan Feld game from 2009 uh, from Alia. And there are certainly a lot of sort of Euro point salad elements in the game. But the thing that, that really sells it to me is a mechanic that I'm really surprised we haven't seen in other games since then. Fundamentally, most of the things you do in the game are done with action cubes. You'll have a certain number of action cubes of six different colors on your turn, and you can spend them to activate cards or make more cubes or score points or buy territory or move your ship or et cetera, et cetera. The way you get those cubes is what makes it neat, because every turn, one of the player rolls the six dice. There are six, six dice, one of each color. And basically, every player picks two of those dice that they want to use for themselves. And the way it works is you get the number of cubes that are showing on the die of that color that many turns in the future. So you might get one black cube on your next turn if a black die rolls a one, or if, if you choose the red five as your die, you get five red cubes, but you don't get them for five turns. So you're, you're sort of planning things into the future and saying, okay, well, I have this card that's really powerful, but I need cubes of four different colors. Am I going to be able to, to synchronize all of that up at the right time? And it's sort of like you're solving a neat little puzzle every turn, and, and I just really enjoy that. Let's face it, Brian. The reason you like Macau is so that you can share the pain of your terrible roles with everyone at yes. the table. Yeah. Suck it. And there's an interesting balance there because if you ever have a turn where you don't have cubes, you actually get penalized. So like sometimes you'll have to say, well, man, I really want the five blue because on that turn, that five blue will be really, really useful five turns from now. But if I don't take that one black, I won't have any cubes next round and, and I take will a be penalty. Terrible. Right? Yeah. So my favorite part of that game is certainly the dice mechanic part of that game. I could probably do without the area control in the city. I think that's the part of the game that I like the least. Mm -hmm. And then the shipping game is fine, mostly because like I feel like the area control game takes a lot more thought than I want to put into the game. I think all the other components together make up a good game. It's just like the air control thing is just puts a little over the edge for me in terms of like, let's call it niggliness. Yeah. 
Well, and I think that goes back to what Brian was saying, that like this dice mechanic and action generation is really interesting. And I I am surprised we have not seen that applied to other games. Yeah, I think if they took that that dice mechanic and the the cards, because I think the card spending the cubes works really well, and maybe stripped out all of the board based stuff, I think you could make a, a really neat sort of tighter version of the yeah, same absolutely. game. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, stick a tech tree on that and I'd be all for it. So the next game that we're going to talk about is uh, Alien Frontiers, which was released in 2010 by Clever Mojo Games and was designed by Tori Neiman. This is a game that I think Joe first introduced. I think he kickstarted the first edition of. Yep. Um, and we played it and it was really unique in that it was a worker placement, but your workers are dice. And every turn you would roll those dice and what you rolled determined where you could place those workers. So if you had doubles, you could go to a space that was activated by having doubles of any number. Or if you got a uh, consecutive, like one, two, three, four, you could go to the place that needed consecutive numbers. It was unlike any other worker placement we had placed at the time. Um, I really enjoyed playing it, but it was not really a game that we've gotten back to the table very often. Yeah, the original version was only four players, and like with our group, like getting four player games to the table is really hard. I think the expansion ups it to five or six. Yeah, one of them, one of the yeah. many, many expansions. <laughs> that, that sounds interesting. I'd like to try that. I like it a lot. It's It's been a long time since I've played it, but the like it's very cool like you roll your dice and like oh man if i roll doubles i can go do this really cool thing but if i can cool there's other cool places for me to spend the dice and you can get i think ships or i forget what exactly what they call them like research things to let you modify the dice some and stuff like that oh yeah the uh i think they're alien artifacts alien artifacts that's right yeah no i i completely agree with joe this is one of the earlier games of a worker placement that i was exposed to and i really like the fact that you know like brian dice don't like me very much (laughs) And so whenever I'm playing a game that requires dice rolling, I get, feel very frustrated most of the time because I, I have to hit a certain number to get what I'm looking to get. Well, in this game, no matter what you roll, you're always doing something productive. Yep. Either you're getting resources or you're advancing your colony track so that you can actually place out a colony. Uh, I like that just like uh, Star, uh, Star Trek Ascendancy, when you build a colony, you can crash your ship into the planet to build the colony <laughs> faster. I always love that mechanic. Yeah, the the col- the game boils down to a territory control uh, game that's happening on the planet surface, and I think Tori Neiman realizes that and made it so that even if you roll absolute garbage, you can always advance towards that goal using the colony placement. Now, that might not be the fastest or more, most efficient way to win, but it is possible to still win even if you are terrible at rolling dice. Yeah, you never feel like you're out of the game. Mm-hmm. That's always a, a frustrating experience when you're like, I, there's nothing I can do with the board the way it is because of my dice rolling skills. Yeah, and that's that's one of the reasons I also like Macau. It's not like I need to roll a certain thing, although there are sometimes when I really need that that blue one for next turn. But it's like there's there's always something you can get out of that. It's not like if I either do this or I fail. But yeah, I'm I'm interested. I haven't played a bunch of the expansions, so I'm interested in trying out some of the expansions. You know, I, I've taken a look at some of the expansions, and I have this fear. I've not yet played this, so I might be blowing smoke here. But I have this fear <sighs> that they take this really tight worker placement game and just 
add too many things to it. Uh, the innovation problem. Well, yes. like it seems like a little bit too much for a worker placement game. Yeah. Plus you get the rules to NC where you just have to explain all the little tiny inadequacies, yeah. how it merges with this other thing. And the, you basically double the rules for, oh, we add these couple little minor expansions that don't do a lot. Yeah. But then you get a nice big box. That you put all the stuff. <laughs> I'm, I'm in. interested in you trying can, them, and yeah. like maybe I'll be like, ah, you know what? I don't need any of those. Certainly, like more players is always nice. I yeah. think. I think oh, yeah. adding another player would 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 make that a game easier to get to the table. Certainly. Yeah, I think what this game did is it took a a solid worker placement game and added this level of randomness through the dice, and it made the game a little bit more random. Which personally, I think some worker placements can use. Um, just because I don't like games that are solvable. Unless I mean, it's Legends of Andor. But that's that's not a game. That's a puzzle. Yeah. And I like solving puzzles. Look, it's this really weird dichotomy, okay? I'm splitting hairs here, but... That's, that's like 90% of what we do. I will say, I also really like the aesthetic of Alien Frontiers. It has this very, like... 1950s Buck Rogers kind of crazy spaceship aesthetic that's really interesting. I have bad news for you, Mike. The new the new edition, I believe, changes the art. Uh, the new edition of what? I'm sorry. Uh, they've got a new edition of um of Alien Frontiers out. Uh, that changes the art? Well, now it's garbage. Oh, yeah. For wait, wait. For better or worse? It's less 50s, you know, space era style art. So it's a Coliseum re-release is what you're saying? And I don't know if it's quite that tragic, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll look at it afterwards. So that yeah. looks kind of 60s, 70s Starlog era science fiction. That might be yeah. okay. Sure, sure. Might I can okay. see that, especially with the, uh, the colony. <laughs> look, uh, I'm design. just saying that any game that can feature my character flying around outer space in his convertible space rocket, <laughs> like that, that's great. I love that aesthetic because who needs air? This is also the game that every time I go to any board gaming convention, I always find their booth and they're always selling those rocket dice. But I'm always like, oh, that's really neat. Oh, I can't read those at all. <laughs> those rocket dice are terrible. They don't roll. They look cool. Yeah, that, that's about all I can Sometimes say Sometimes looking cool is all you need, man. So the next game we want to talk about uh, is King's Forge. Mm. Want to talk about? Hey, I like King's Forge. <laughs> wow. Y'all yeah. sh- shut your mouth. So there are, I didn't there say are, nothing. Are... Hey, let me finish the intro, you monsters. <laughs> So, King's Forge, released in 2014 by Game Salute, uh, designed by Jonathan Kurtz. And unlike all of you monsters, I really like the game. Hey, Joe, I will die with you on that hill. Like, on, on that anvil. We, we, <laughs> on that anvil, exactly. <laughs> Joe, we played that game. I immediately went out and bought another copy of it because I love that game, too. So... To describe the game in simple terms for everyone who hasn't played it, um, you start with a set of black dice, and they are iron, and iron is a resource. And over the course of the game, you will, the course of every round, you will be drafting out cards out of a central card pool, spending dice from your collection to acquire new different forms of dice. There's wood, which is a green die, and there's gems, which are blue, and there's magic, which is red. And then at the end of the round, Whatever dice you haven't spent on acquiring f- dice that will be useful in future turns, you can roll and attempt to craft some of the items that are craftable that round. There's only three items that are craftable per round. So you roll your dice and the dice might say, hey, it's an anvil, so it takes t- three black twos. And so if you don't have three black dice, there's no way you can get it. And also, you can steal items from other people who craft them. So if I roll three black dice and I get three threes and I claim an anvil, Mike later rolls four black, three black dice gets four threes. Three fours. Three fours. That's the go. one. That's the one that makes more sense. Sorry. Math is hard. 
Um, he could then take it from me, and so instead he'll craft it. Because his anvil is better. His anvil is better than my anvil. And the victory condition on the game is you have to be the first person to get X number of these items crafted, and I think that number varies on number of players. Yeah, it depends on the number of players. Yeah, it, I mean, I like the idea of the game, and I'm, I'm glad it's something that you guys enjoy. For me, it is a game of rolling dice better, which I am fundamentally handicapped at. Yeah. So it, it's not one that I'm going to be excited to see at the table. Frank had a really good uh, observation before we started recording about what, what we don't like about it. Yeah, and it's that with... Uh, Kingsport Festival slash uh, Kingsburg, as well as Alien Frontiers, you put the die rolling in King's Forge all the way at the end, right before you score. And while you can buy things to screw with your dice, the ultimate sign of your scoring is whatever you roll. The other games put that first, and then you start manipulating to see what you can get. And you generally know what you get. King's Forge, uh, something happens. Yeah, and it makes this interesting decision matrix where it's like, how do you invest your dice? Because obviously, the more dice that you retain until you roll them, the better odds you will have. But yeah, no, totally. If you're someone like Jason or Brian, and you roll eight dice, they're all going to come up ones. Like, yeah, the game isn't really going to help you there. So The game doesn't like you at that point. Stop being bad at dice. We also had another great moment when we were playing uh, where Frank was looking at the board state because you can see all the things that need to be crafted as the game progresses. And he goes... Oh, I've already lost this. <laughs> yeah, and I realize uh, there is an engine going there. You're so far behind that engine. Any game has that. In this case, the dice engine going in King's Forge is kind of brutal. But yeah, yeah, it is. It, it's unforgiving. Uh, especially because, sure. Jason, I think that moment in which Frank decided that he had already lost was like turn two, and mm -hmm. he wasn't wrong. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's just by fault, though. Uh, you know, I like Antiquity, which has one of those brutal, vicious, horrible engines and destruction. I mean, look, Frank, we, sometimes we, we just got to be a glutton for punishment. Like, yeah, I totally. am inherently bad at Chinatown, and yet <laughs> I am always up to play Chinatown. And there's there's Good a point. couple there's a couple of cool expansions. One which in, like there's some that introduce some new like types of things to craft with, which are fine. But there's also a couple of expansions that include like, hey, you can hire assistants, which help you with future roles, like a permanent bonus and stuff like that, which which changes the game up, I think, a fair amount. Uh, which expansion had the brown dice? I'm still trying to figure that out. There weren't any brown dice. Oh, yes, there were. No, there aren't <laughs> any brown dice anywhere in my set. I saw two brown dice in <laughs> Yeah. Some of the dice, I think, escaped production value. There was, there was oh. a quality control issue. Quality control issue. Oh, this is a game salute game. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one of my one of the first times I played this game, somebody had the Kickstarter extras and one of the Kickstarter extras was the totally pointless board, which was labeled as the totally pointless board. Well, at least they acknowledge it. They're upfront about it. Yeah. Were there miniatures, Mike? <laughs> there were not. Although Unless they, you count the anvil. I, I think say, the anvil is worth mentioning. I, one of my personal favorite first player markers, which was the uh, surprisingly heavy plastic anvil. <laughs> that is just the most totally, ridiculous totally thing pointless. ever. We need to play my condottier with the giant metal conquistador. Mm, oh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> So moving on, uh, Kingsport Festival is another one we actually got to play before we, we decided to record. So Kingsport Festival, released in 2014 by Passport Game Studios, Sir Chester Cobblepot and Stretti Libri, Andrea Chiaveso, and Gianluca Santopietro. Kingsport Festival is actually a, a minor reworking of a 2007 game called Kingsburg by the same designers and published by Stratalibri as well. 
the two are really close. We'll probably mostly talk about Kingsport because yeah, that was the is. one I could find. Yeah, basically, you, you take Kingsburg and you add Cthulhu, and adding Cthulhu makes everything better or what I, horrifyingly what I, worse. Yeah, what I do appreciate about the game is you were actually playing high priests of cults instead of the traditional like Arkham horror route where you're, oh, where are these you know plucky investigators trying to stop these evil cults? No, we're the evil cults, and we're trying to gather power and awaken these uh, great elder gods to ruin this. This uh, I guess it's Arkham we're playing in, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Port, actually, hence the name. Anyway, you begin your turn by rolling three dice, and around the board are tiles of Elder Gods, and each one of them has a number. And after you've rolled your dice, you may place a die or multiple die totaling the exact number of whatever that, that Elder God is. And based on which ones you place on, you'll get certain resources. So you'll usually pay something like one or two sanity to get you know some spell ability or some cubes that represent resources. And once you select a location, no one else can take it that turn. So you end up kind of looking at your dice and saying, oh, I have a five and two fours. Well, I could play them all together to get a 13 and place on 13 space, or I could play on a nine and hope that no one takes the four space. Like there's a kind of a balancing act there. Yeah. And there is sort of a, a utility space that you can always take if you have dice that won't go anywhere else. That is one of the few ways to get sanity back because Cthulhu. And I think one of the things that this this game does a great job of doing is really rewarding the player who rolls low. That player might not get the best stuff, but they go first. So they can block other players out of taking some spaces yeah, and really dictate where the game goes. They're not going to get shut out themselves. And they recover sanity. So it's almost a double bonus. I didn't think I rolled above a nine the entire time we were playing. I so. think you rolled about four nines in a row, <laughs> yeah, actually. Facing. Yeah. And uh, both of them have a kind of a tech tree thing going where getting the extra things is important. When you look at Kingsburg, which is 2007, actually predates our first two games, this was a game that cropped up in the Euro scene that was really one of the first games to have dice and a kind of Euro resource spend your things. And it was accepted. And I think that that it really paved the way for Castles of Burgundy and the other dice, Euro games with dice and Macau as well. Because for a long time, the, the main distinguishing factor of Euro games was that there's no randomness and it is to some extent, a game that can be solved. One thing that I, I, I want to point out about Kingsport is graphic design. Like, <laughs> that board is a nightmare to And look not at. in the groovy Cthulhu way. If you want it to be nightmarish, it's very difficult to read. Yeah, it, it, it did affect playability, and I was sitting right next to the board. I couldn't imagine what it would have been to be Joe, who was kind of playing at one end of the table and was... A little bit further away from the board mostly i mean we probably could have solved that by scooting everything closer to him Why would but we with do that? having the 20 actions arranged around the board it's not just a board you are moving it is a board plus 20 individual cards and it would have been just not great yeah i think that the big challenge with it is it's a very busy board first of all so there's a lot of things going on but it's also a very dark board like for example when we were looking at the the difference between paying a resource and gaining resources the the symbology is there but it's also very hard to see at a distance and it took a bit to actually focus in okay I pay this to get this. Oh, wait, no, there's a slash there. There's actually a choice here. I can get this or this. And also the fact that three of the resources you're using are pink and red and orange, <laughs> which is maybe not the best choice. It's like trying to read a code number off the sun or something. <laughs> right. The other thing that I thought was weird is that there are little um, 
tiles that go on top of the various locations in the game that tell you what each location does. Now, they go on the same location on the board every game. It seems like that would maybe be the kind of thing you could print on the board rather than having extra tiles, although maybe it's just a concession to the fact that you're going to have people sit in the weird place and they can just pick the tile up and look at what it does. Yeah, the, uh, the art for the, the Elder Gods and the, the buildings themselves are actually is actually pretty nice, but you have this giant cardboard text sitting on top of each of the locations, so you never see the art. I don't know why they just, from a color standpoint, I don't know why they just don't pick like a bunch of neon colors to make them really, really obvious. And this is not the only Cthulhu-based game with this problem, so I'm just going to put it out to the universe, guys. If you are making a game that is based on Cthulhu, your board does not need to literally induce madness. (laughs) (laughs) But it is a side benefit. Is it? Is it? Yeah, but honestly, the original game, Kingsburg, doesn't have these problems. The numbers are in the middle of the board, and then everyone gets their own little tech tree for figuring out where. So you get to see all the text right there in front of you. Yeah, that sounds much better. And turns out there's a second edition that's very recent from Z-Man Asmodee, which might be the way to go. That just makes me wonder why they went away from that design in Kingsport Festival. Because yeah. Cthulhu. I guess. I I mean, that's the problem when you have creative people like game design and theme folks who are also doing the graphic design. They're very different art forms. Yeah, they really are. The next game we want to talk about is Role Player, released in 2016 by Thunderworks Games, divined by Keith Matejka. And let's also open this up to also talk about Sagrada, which was released in 2017 by Floodgate Games, designed by Adrian Amadescu and Daryl Andrews, as they are, they share a lot in common, let's say. Yeah, they they don't look similar on the surface, but there's an engine going through them both that is very similar. So in both games, the players who, who is the chosen player for the turn selects some dice out of a random pool of dice without looking at them, so that the dice colors are random, rolls them all, and then they enter into functionally a draft state, in role player, they are put on a, a set of turn order cards in ascending order. Uh, in Sagrada, they're just grouped together and then you just draft out of them. In role player, you select one die and you also get an initiative card as part of it. In Sagrada, it's a snake draft. If you're first, you select one die first. Everyone selects one dead into the last player. The last player selects two, then it walks back up to you. And then you have a choice between the last two dice of the game. Yeah, it's it's uh, sort of the Catan style thing, you know, first to last, last to first. Yep. And these two games are, are fascinating because... They play so similarly that it really comes down, I think, to theme as, at least for me, deciding which one I like better. And obviously, I, I like roleplay better just because that hits me in all the feels. Whereas Sagrada, it's an interesting concept uh, where you are designing a stained glass window. And it is certainly pretty to look at, but I could not have stained glass in my life. I can't not have D&D in my life. That's just <laughs> not going to happen. Well, so like after you take the dice... In both games, you have a tableau in front of you and you decide where you want to place the dice and you're trying to place the dice to get your best score by the end of the game, right? It's like one of the things that both games share really heavily is that when you start to place dice, you know what the final outcome is going to be in from a scoring standpoint, right? You have all the scoring information up front in both games. There's some extra scoring you can get from like the deck in role player, which makes it a little bit more random, but like kind of your base scoring opportunities are always right in front of you. There's never any question about like, oh, hey, is this going to score higher than this or is this going to score higher than this? No, you, you kind of know all this stuff up front for both games. Very Much more for Sagrada, right? Sagrada is functionally, hey, here's the three ways you can score and then you score a single hidden thing, which is like you have a color of die and you sum that color of dice in your board and you're done. 
Yeah, I mean, Sagrada, to Mike's point, is definitely a lot more abstract. It's also a lot more strict because in Sagrada there are, are basically everybody gets a card at the start of the game that tells you sort of the pattern that you're trying to construct. And there are some very strict, you know, you can only place a four here, you can only place a red die here, you know, and that sort of thing. And you can't place the same number or the same color adjacent to each other. So it's just like, no, if, if you don't get the right dice, you you may be stuck without a play. It's rare, but it happens. In role player, you've always got a place where you can put a die. You may really not want to put it there, but at least you've got to play. What's really fascinating is both of these games give players the ability to manipulate their dice in some fashion, but the way in which they do that is also very different. With roleplayer, every die that you place, you may activate that placement's ability, which might be to pick up a die on your display, re-roll it, and put it back into the spot you picked it up. You can switch two dice on your display. You can flip a die on your display. It gives you a plethora of things to mitigate a bad pull. You know, we didn't really talk about the the theme behind roleplayer that much, but I mean, as a, as a longtime D&D nerd... Basically, the concept is at the start of the game, you get a character, class, and a race from all of your standard D&D, you know, uh, fighter, wizard, bard, Mm -hmm. you know, orc, half-elf, whatever. And um, you basically have a set of stats that you are trying to achieve. And the template you're putting your dice into is you have three six-sided dice for strength and three for intelligence. And very familiar to anybody who's who's played D&D. Although the kids today are all doing point-by systems, they should get off my lawn. But it's because basically if I put a die in the constitution row, then I get to use the bonus for constitution. So you've got, uh, there's a lot more die manipulation. In Sagrada, there are a couple of shared tools that you can use, but you'll only use maybe two or three of them in a game because they're expensive and you have limited resources to do them. And correct me if I'm wrong, but those tools that come up in Sagrada are different every game, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, right? three out of a pool of 12 or so, I think. Yeah, but because of the die manipulation as well as the fact that you just can't place there, Sagrada's a lot easier to teach and the rules are two pages tops, whereas role player kind of goes on a little yeah, ways it's, and it's, it's a little, little harder to teach, yeah. Yeah, I mean, personally, I, I prefer Sagrada. I mean, like, I agree with Mike that, like, roleplayer certainly hits me in the feels. But I think from a game design standpoint, Sagrada, I think Sagrada shows the obvious evolution. Right, Sagrada came out after roleplayer. I think Sagrada shows the obvious kind of evolution specifically of, like, this specific roll dice and then place them in a tableau mechanic. Sagrada is a little bit more straightforward and a little bit more obvious, I think, than roleplayer. It's player. a little more elegant, It's I a little think. more elegant, exactly. That's actually fascinating that Sagrada came out after uh, role player did because that's not the order in which at least our gaming group played those games in. Sagrada was the first of those two games that we played kind of collectively. And I mean, Frank, you might be different there, but I know at least with Brian and Joe and I, we all played Sagrada for the first time together and then later played role player. Yeah, now that you mention it, like it definitely looks like they took the concept behind role player and said hey cool what if we cut out all this extra stuff mm-hmm. no i actually think that they were a simultaneous kind of sort of a parallel evolution parallel evolution really yeah. interesting yeah they were close enough while they were 2016 2017 i think yeah. we're talking about late 2016 or yeah, early 2017 yeah. yeah and it's it, yeah it was long in development before that yeah the way movie it's like the way movie studios occasionally put out two movies of the exact same movie now at with the, same the asteroids time. hitting the earth yeah. summer exactly yeah. exactly totally role player the monsters and minions expansion is one of the ones i like now i have not played the expansion can you 
elaborate on what exactly is involved in that expansion? Because I just can't picture how Roleplayer can get any bigger. It's actually kind of brilliant what they're doing. If you The big changes are all in the market phase. What they do is they open up an extra card in the market phase, as well as the option of if you just don't want to buy anything because that just really doesn't do much for you, you can go kill a monster. And there's a bunch of minion monsters where you grab dice and roll. You get bonuses based on how much your character's been built up so far and go kill a monster. You get experience. You can lose health, which are just minus points. And most important, you get a clue about the boss monster. Uh, And there are three different characteristics for what you need to go fight the boss monster. So, And then there's one more phase at the end of the game where everyone grabs the dice, works out the clues they've worked out against the boss monster, and then they take a big bucket of dice and roll to try to get the highest number against the boss. That's it. So you really just, the game's not that much longer. The market phase has more options, and then you get one big die bomb against the uh, boss monster and it feels more like D&D. Sounds inelegant. Uh, but in all oh, seriousness, <laughs> like yes. so, it sounds it sounds like a lot of fun but it sounds like a mess. <laughs> it's actually not that bad. It's okay. pretty well put together. There's and it doesn't add a lot of phases or That's good. They That's integrate good. it really. I'd be well. happy to give it a try. Yeah, absolutely. In all seriousness, I do have one concern about that just from a theme mechanic is like I'm creating my character. How am I already fighting monsters? Doesn't add up. Like you're also buying equipment before you have stats, so I don't want to hear. But but you can do that as part of character creation. Dungeon crawl classics and zero level characters? Seriously. I mean, are we getting into the point where like my character can die in character creation? Because we So now we're playing Traveler. I've played that game before. It didn't work out well. So as an aside, Dungeon Crawl Classics actually has a mode where you get a bunch of zero level character sheets that are basically scratch off character sheets. Wow. <laughs> and as you're playing your first little adventure in the dungeon, it's like, I have to make an attack. Oh my God. I wonder what's what's what I'm strange? good at. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really cool, actually. I want to try that. <laughs> you thought I was going to say fascinating again. I was just going to say with that, that expansion, it, it to me, at least, you know, kind of on an emotional level, it's nice to actually have an end goal towards this character creation. It's like, I've got my character, go do something, and then the game's over. Yeah, I like that. So so the next one we're, we're going to talk about, I, I should hate this game so much. <laughs> it's a collectible card game with dice. That's like the two things I just, my soul just... It's okay, Jason, I hate pain. it for you. Thank, thank you. Okay, good. As long as someone's hating it. Uh, so we're talking about Star Wars Destiny here. Uh, it came out in 2016 from Fantasy Flight Games, designed by uh, Corey Kanetska and Lukasa Litzinger. And essentially, this is this is Fantasy Flight's attempt to make a card game with an extra mechanic on top of it, right? I mean, everyone's familiar with Magic the Gathering. That's kind of like the you know, the pinnacle of collectible card games. Well, they're taking a property they've they've made dozens of games in that's very popular. And adding the ability to put some randomness into what those cards can do. Uh, essentially, in the game, you will select some characters. Let's say Darth Vader and the Emperor, if you want to. You'll select some characters. You will play cards onto them that have upgrades. The characters plus a number of the upgrades come with a die. That die has different facings on it. And as you activate that character, you'll roll that the die of the character along with any upgrades that are attached to that character. 
And it's all a game all about action economy. Each round, a player has one action. That could be activating a character to roll dice. It could be resolving a facing on, on all your die, right? So if you have three dice with blaster symbols, you can resolve all the blaster symbols and shoot the other person's characters. And essentially, you go back and forth until either someone has lost all of their characters or someone has been milled out of their deck. For me, like, Joe and I played a demo game of this at a convention, and I was, I didn't want to like it. I, I Definitely don't need a collectible card game in my life. And uh, it was really fun. It's a very fast game. Uh, because it's one action per player, it goes back and forth very quickly. So you keep the, that player engagement up. And I love Star Wars. So it, it was, unfortunately, uh, for my bank account, it was a big hit with me. And now I have all of it. What I think is really interesting about this game is with Fantasy Flight's sales model, they've been leaning with many of their games towards a non-collectible card game sales type, I yeah, guess. they like, call them living card games. Well, they've got their living card games, but not only that, their X-Wing miniatures, their Armada miniatures, those are all like, you buy a pack, you know exactly what you're getting. And it this just seems kind of out of left field for them. And I, I got to be honest, I think I'm, I'm with Brian on this one. Or I, I don't know that I hate the game, but it loses the strategy of magic where it's like, hey, do I attack? Do I defend? Because of that randomness. And I think maybe as far as not knowing exactly what you're going to get, people who like dice games are going to like that. Apparently, people who don't like dice games are also going to like it. So I think a lot of that is the reason I do like it, even though it has dice, is because there are so many options for dice mitigation. So there's a facing called focus where essentially it'll have a number. It'll say, like, let's say focus two. I can change two of my other dice to whatever I want. Mm. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, if I don't have that or I don't have a character that has that, that symbol on their dice, I can literally discard a card from my hand and re-roll any or all of my dice. That alone mitigates a lot of that. Now, that being said, I've burned three cards in a row trying to get Han Solo to roll something other than a blank and failed every time. So one thing about Mike's comment, um, when you talk about why they went back to a collectible format, I think part of that is actually the retailer side. Think about, you know, if you had Magic the Gathering when you first got it, you got your boosters and you got your starter decks. That's it. Two skews. You have to put them on a rack. When you get to like X-Wing minis, there's like 30 or 40 different packs yeah. of crap. Yeah. So I, Fantasy Flight, I know, wants to get away from that because their retailers are getting tired of walls of crap. That's fair. So the other thing I really like about Star Wars Destiny from like a physical component standpoint is the dice are very hefty. Yes. A character really can only get like a couple of dice as kind of their total roll. But like when you have like three or four dice, you really feel like you're rolling a bunch of dice because they're really big dice. You know, when they each they're have very... a, a picture of, of that character in action mode along with the icons. Yep. I mean, it's a little busy graphically to look at, but I mean, it, you always know where the section is. It tells you what the die actually does. So that's nice. Mm -hmm. I mean, the components are great. Fantasy Flight, if nothing else, is good at making good components except for box inserts. <laughs> Yeah, it is It is a little dis disorienting when you're playing, though, where you have, I mean, it's all of Star Wars. So I could have Anakin Skywalker fighting Darth Vader <laughs> or, you know, Yoda teaching Rey. <laughs> it's just, it, that, that, it's very... that's super meta. One yeah. thing I was surprised about as well is that it had a lot more resource management than is typical for a CCG. I mean, there are magic, but also tokens and things. And I haven't really seen that kind of thing since Netrunner, the iconic, oh my God, this is so good collectible card game. It's funny that you bring up Netrunner because I was going to bring that up as well because I feel like I have the same problem with this game than I do with Netrunner, where there is a 
a variety of ways in which you could approach winning the game. And I'm like, you know, I don't know that I really want to go down the rabbit hole of thinking through the strategies of this game. Um, that's one reason I never got into Netrunner. I'm like, wait a minute, I can attack this person's deck and discard pile and hand and each of their lanes, but they can have an infinite number of lanes. Like, I, I kind of feel the same thing going on here where it's like, cool, I can have an infinite combination of characters that can all focus on different methods of winning the game. Well, so I'm curious, in terms of your personal history in playing games, did you play a lot of Magic the Gathering? Oh, yeah, but the strategy for Magic the Gathering are relatively narrow. I can attack a character's hit points, or if you're playing blue, you can mill through the deck, but like there are only so many ways to win a game of Magic, and those typically boil down to mill a character's deck or attack their hit points. But that's the same in Destiny. Sure. And again, I'm trying to, I've, I'm trying to understand I've now, the difference. I've now played this once, but like... <laughs> You're an expert! <laughs> the fact that I'm not attacking the opposite player, I'm attacking their characters. I don't know. Like I said, it, it just didn't really... And there was no form of defense. Yeah, there was shields. fighting against Brian, and I was attacking him with like every bullet I could pick up. And there wasn't that much that Brian could do about that. I mean, part of that is because I'm bad at rolling dice. He could have rolled better. Yeah, I could. I could have done that. But, I mean, it didn't help that I I got rather badly blown out in the one game I played. And, you know, certainly some of it is is down to die rolls. It was also, you know, like Mike, I don't think I really grokked the way everything fit together. It's something that I think I could certainly, you know, get better at with time. There's not enough there that grabs me that I feel like I want to commit the time in. Like perhaps if I was back in high school when really for me, CCGs were at their peak, I could see a version of me that really gets into that. I just don't know that current me is the person that this game was made for. Yeah, I, I think it's certainly a game that you could get obsessive about. And I only have room for one of those in my life at any given time. And this isn't it. That's fair. So what you're saying, Mike, is it's not Kingdom Death? Because, like, that's a really high bar. <laughs> I mean, sure. I mean, <laughs> Ultimately, yes. Or or Arkham Horror Card Game or Gloomhaven or one of the many other games that I'm currently obsessing over. Like I said, this is, I think, an interesting take on the collectible card game genre. I don't know that I ever really want to go back to a collectible card game that's not magic. Like, that's my problem is, like, is it better than magic? Not in my book. Mm-hmm. Magic set that bar really high. Turns out it's a pretty good game. It's got some legs. Just a few. So our next game would be Dice Forge, which is 2017, uh, published by Asmodee and Libelud. Designer is Regis Bonisset. Guessing it's French. It feels very French. Yeah. The uh, the game is actually kind of structured more after a collectible deck builder game, except it's all about dice. In particular, you've got two dice where you can remove the faces and replace faces with other faces. You can take the face off. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I love that concept. Like, oh, yeah, I totally. really do. Replacing dice faces, so no matter what I roll, I get a victory point. Yes, yes, I like that a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the structure of the game is completely there's a market where you can buy faces that you stick on your dice, or you can basically go shopping at the card market <coughs> where you buy a few powers, but mostly you're collecting victory points. And literally, that's it. Two kinds of actions go after each one. When you roll the dice, you get resources. 
So one of the things I really like about the game is that you roll your dice on every turn. So instead of being like, oh, I roll my dice on my turn, I get some stuff, and then I wait, every turn you roll your dice and increase your numbers, but you don't spend them until your turn. So you have this kind of nice progression over turns of like, hey, instead of feeling like, oh, I'm not doing anything, every turn you're always doing something, which makes everyone really engaged all the time. And it feels really good to kind of like watch your numbers kind of grow and then go spend them all on something really cool to get a new die face. And then you hit that new die face and it's awesome. Like it's Or, or it, you don't. Or you don't. But like it feels really good when you do that, right? It feels... It flows really well, and it, it keeps everyone engaged the entire game. Yeah, and kind of building off of that, one of the really great things is the ability to copy another person's die yes. and then chain that with, like, I've got a tripler on one of my other die facings. Now I'm stealing Joe's die and tripling it. So that it's, it's way better than what he got. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's funny that you say this is very reminiscent of a deck builder game because much like if you go back and listen to our deck building episode. Episode one, check it out. There is this point in the game in which you have built your engine and you now need to start scoring points because at the end of the game, the only thing that matters is scoring points. And if you do that too soon, you can stall out and basically have an engine that doesn't produce enough for the in-game play. And if you switch too late, you are going to be behind on that curve. And it, it really did give that same feel. Yeah, it's also a 30, 45 minute game. It's really easy to teach, uh, even not having to remember the rules. I think I ripped through that in a couple minutes. Yeah, the iconography is very clear for the most part. I, as may have become clear, I'm not a big fan of a lot of dice games, but I mean, this one's fun. It's a neat concept. The, the components are great. And the insert. Oh, my God. Yes, the insert, the insert is, is, is lovely. I, I bought the game and I had some friends over and we weren't playing any games. I was just like, come look at this insert. This is amazing. It's just, it's glorious. Everything fits and it's perfect. It's funny because the dice, I think, in Dice Forge are about the same size as the dice from Star Wars Destiny. <laughs> yeah, where they're, they're, right. they're like they are. A, 150 times a regular die size. Like not quite double, but big enough that about, about an those square. two dice fill up your hand. I, I think that's going back to Star Wars Destiny for a minute. I had a point at which I was rolling four dice. I'm like, I, I can't hold this many. <laughs> so much power. And for you, Frank, they're coming out with an expansion for Dice Forge. So. <laughs> I mean, it'll probably be good. More, more yeah, die it. faces. You know. <laughs> it's like more die faces. Like, it's really expandable, I think. Yeah, yeah die faces yeah. and cards, I think, is what it's yeah, coming out with. That's that's, so, yeah, variability, the good kind of expansion. And then uh, the last one we had on our list is is a big epic that uh, Frank introduced me to, and I immediately went out and bought all the things because I have more money than sense, also because I really like the game. It's called Too Many Bones. Uh, came out in 2017 from Chip Theory Games, which is Adam and Josh Carlson. And for those of you who haven't seen Chip Theory Games, and they've got, I think, three games out now. There's this, Triplock and Hoplomachus. And yeah, and Hoplomachus has 30 million expansions. We yeah. do need to play Hoplomachus. I have it. Okay. What is it about? Kind of a gladiatorial combat mm -hmm. with big, I mean, cool poker chips. I mean, yeah. definitely. Yeah, as, as the name of the company implies, Chip Theory Games, everything in the game tends to resolve around these big uh, poker chips. In Too Many Bones, which is sort of a dungeon crawlery, you know, adventure quest game, you will have your characters on the map, which is a poker chip, and he has a stack of poker chips underneath him that indicate how many wounds he has. And the same thing for the monster. So as you do damage to a thing, you can see the stack getting shorter and you can tell at a glance, okay, how wounded are you? Who is the biggest threat we have? That kind of thing. The monsters are individual poker chips that each have different powers that will let them do different things or limit your dice effectiveness. 
the really neat thing is that each character plays completely differently. There are, I think, five or six characters in the base set and a couple that are available in expansions. It's uh, four characters in the base set and three, three expansions. expansions. And they have just finished kickstarting the, the next big expansion, which is more like three expansions in a row. And this is a it, it is a solid adventure game that I think really takes that character customization to the next level. I mean, most adventure games have the, oh, I'm a fighter using a sword and shield, or I'm a wizard using spells, and I'm a ranger shooting a bow, but those weapons all function the same way. In Too Many Bones, every dice is unique. And so as we're playing our, our characters, like, I've learned how my character works, but I look over at what, like... Frank is doing and I'm like what are those symbols even <laughs> doing I don't understand yeah it's like I'm here just trying to tank the monsters and Jason's over there building weird spider robots, robots and, <laughs> and and Mike's like I can't throw any grenades I haven't found enough fuses yet I'm like what are you people even doing but it's a lot of fun. The premise is it's sort of a self-contained campaign. So one game might be three hours, but it's basically start to finish. You start leaving the hometown, you end up fighting the big bad boss, assuming you make it that way. Some of us didn't make it that far. There are campaign rules coming out so you can actually take care of progress them over time. But in each encounter, basically, you're gaining experience ones you can use to increase your stats or learn new skills. And new skills are new dice. So, you know, you have a certain number of dice you can roll per turn and you can pick from all the things you've learned how to do and they all do a variety of weird things and one of the things you know again not being a big fan of how dice games typically work all of the dice facings are useful on all of your dice even if you roll essentially what constitutes a blank which is the bones of the name of the game the bones go into a, was it a backup plan i think it's mm -hmm. called that will give you other abilities. In fact, if you get to the very top of your track, you get a permanent upgrade to your, your character's innate ability. So you're always feeling like you're, you're being effective in some way, shape, or form. There's no useless uh, die facing. So I'm really excited for the campaign rules. I definitely felt like when we played the game, I was like, man, this is really great, but I kind of want a little bit more like game-to-game -game transference of like some of the stuff I built up. So I'm really interested to see how they did that. Yeah. Um, they're going for a more um, Pathfinder game. They're going for more kind of a perk thing where you sure. get perks. No, that sounds great. I mean, like, it, it, so it's more innate skills, essentially? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I, yeah, I'm okay good. with that because I personally really enjoyed the way that the Pathfinder Adventure card game handled character progression from game to game. Like, I thought that was really invocative of leveling up a Pathfinder character. So if that's the way they're going with this, yeah. I love it. Now, the... One thing that misses with theme, and I take this very seriously, is the the characters in the game Too Many Bones are, what are they called? Gearlocks. Gearlocks are basically D&D gnomes. And-ish. Nobody wants to play a gnome. That's wow. why they're gearlocks. Racist much? Yeah, I know. You're going to get a lot of angry emails, Mike. Because there goes half our viewers, <laughs> our listeners. <laughs> Please send all your angry gnomish uh, emails to josephstreaky at <laughs> gmail.com. I don't even know if I have Joseph Streaky at gmail.com. We'll find out. He looks like a ranger who travels around with a tiger and a hawk. I mean, that's kind of awesome. Uh, no, no. like Yeah, you're, you're broken. You're going to get an angry badger in the mail at some point. Uh, clearly. <laughs> That's okay. We can take care of an angry badger. But really, Too Many Bones, unlike a lot of the dungeon crawl games, which have a million squares, Too Many Bones goes for a really Japanese RPG, computer RPG game kind of thing. 
Really, there are only 16 squares on that grid. You get to go in the front row or the back row, and the monsters go in the front row or the back row, depending off their you know, missile or melee. You don't move around much. There's no line of sight. All those rules are just gone. You're mostly focused on, oh, crap, who do I attack and what order do I take them down? So it's really clever how combat works in the yeah. game. It's not easy. Certainly yeah. the first time you play it, there are some. And if you don't have a good character composition in your party, you're going to have some problems. It's funny that you mentioned the board, because when we first sat down to that board, it looks really small. And it gives you the sense of like, wait, is that it? Yeah, your battle map is about eight inches square. And it definitely did not feel as restrictive as it first looks after we started playing. I'm like, okay, cool. No, that's it. That's way more than it looks like upon first inspection. It's like, wait, wait, wait. They're all the way over there, three squares away. That's so far. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, for, for such a small map, positioning is actually fairly important, especially like, so I was playing a character that that spits out uh, spider robots but i have to do it adjacent and they can only attack things that are adjacent to them but i also want to hide behind our tank because i can't take a hit worth anything so it was a lot of okay mike you need to go over here so that i can put my bot here and then brian can be in front of me so he can take all the damage and die and i won't but don't forget that i'm playing the grenadier who's gonna be like no but you can't stand there i'm gonna throw grenades there yeah that requires me understanding how your character works which i definitely do not do <laughs> yeah, I, I think we we maybe needed a slightly different party <laughs> probably but it's uh it's a fun game. Was it's, it just the tank, the grenadier, and the guy who makes robots? Because that does sound like a bad part. Well, our, our healer had to leave halfway through. Yeah, that, <laughs> oh, that's, that, that was good. That's that's was problematic. That's problematic for sure. Patches, Patches is actually the best character and the meanest. Uh, poison and stem. Yeah. So I'm like some kind of weird drug doc version of a gear lock. <laughs> yeah, Gilly which is, is also... not your typical gnome. No. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I stated my complaints earlier, but I will admit that the, the gear locks definitely gives this game a flavor unlike any other adventure game. Yeah, you're not elves and dwarves fighting orcs and trolls. Well, well there are trolls in it. And it gives the game, I think, this sense of levity that most other adventure games are so, like, self-serious. Like, we are adventurers going on an adventure to destroy the ultimate evil. And this is like, nah, we're just gearlocks going from a city to a bad guy. Let's do this. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of, you know, sort of good bits with the banter back and forth between the uh, the different characters. And the the character mats are all uh, these thick sort of mouse pad material with slots die cut for each of your dice. It's I mean, production quality is top notch on this. It's a it's a big, heavy, expensive box, but I think it's worth it. Yeah. Cards are cards and uh, player handouts are all PVC plastic oh, that's right, yeah. all the way through. There's no I mean, cardboard in the game. Yeah. Gorgeous. All, all around. Totally gorgeous. So, now that we've kind of gone through all of our games, like, what's your favorite, Brian? I'm glad you asked, Joe. Partly because this is that part of the show. I'm a big fan of Too Many Bones. It does some interesting, clever things. But I'm actually going to have to go back to Macau, even though it's got, you know, some weird, excessive point salady euro bits on it. The core engine there of the dice wheel and the card purchasing mechanic is so hits me square in the place in my soul where I like cool bits in games. And I'm always happy to play that game. Mike? I'm going to have to go with Too Many Bones. I mean, not only is this a sprawling adventure game with character progression, but every single dice is unique. Like every character die does something totally different. And like, I cannot think of a single other dice game that have that many unique dice in them. 
Frank's thinking about it. <laughs> Frank no, knows no, all the no, things. No, so. no, I'm good. All right, no, I'm good. cool. I've got a definitive <laughs> statement that I'm definitely not going to be wrong about or regret ever. Mike is aware that the default attack and defense dice are not unique. Hey, everyone gets 16 dice. Those are totally unique. Those right. dice I, are I'm totally back unique. Right. I'm backing him like, up on this. Yeah, like that is that's amazing. And the fact that it can play with so many different characters, so many different dice, and still have that really good experience, I think, is the my my Desert Island dice game. There is one normal D6 in Too Many Bones, and you look at it and you go, what the hell are you doing here? It's like the, it's like the red-headed stepchild of Why the dice family. Why would I ever want to roll that? You just think of the fact that one guy's just like, well, I they, they probably need one. <laughs> no, I mean, there are things you, you use it for, but uh, still. There is a game called Election X from Waddington's in 1970, a bit of out of clue trivia, where, in fact, they do include a die in the game um, that is not used at all in the game. <laughs> the factory and the company made them add it because people would expect there to be a die in the game. <laughs> Excellent. That, that's actually hilarious because there are several gamers I know who would be driven to insanity because of that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I lost a good 20 minutes over what? What is it? I do. I don't. Why? It, yeah. I'm just impressed with too many bones that they don't have more misprinted dice because from a production standpoint, that's got to be a nightmare. Oh, yeah. Again, I need to go first next time, guys. Cool. I'm so tired of just jumping on the bandwagon. So, but, Macau? Uh, yeah, no, no, not that. Uh, no, too many bones, just, just like Mike. Uh, I think for me, I, I really like games that have a lot of high customizability. Uh, the fact that you basically decide how you want your character to develop is really... Uh, it's very engaging for me when I'm playing a game. I like that it abstracts the combat, but it has a very clear representation of health. Like seeing a towering stack of health chips for an enemy and seeing uh, Brian's dwindling <laughs> stack is a very easy way of telling how badly we're doing. Answer, very badly. Yeah. <laughs> when, when your tank goes down in the first round, you, you know you're going to have a rough time. Uh, as I'm desperately forcing robots together, and Mike's like, I'm still building my bombs. <laughs> I need some more fuses, guys. I'm still looking. <laughs> guys? Oh, they're all dead. But no, it, it has a lot of really unique uh, elements to it. I like that it's cooperative. I like that it's very difficult. Nothing's worse than an easy cooperative game. And you can't fault the quality of all the, the products. Although Brian has ruined me by buying the enhanced wound markers that now of course i need those too well yes i mean the basic ones are just plastic <laughs> poker chips i mean fine for the little people i guess <laughs> gross i didn't know those are an extra add-on i opened up my box I'm like what the hell is this <laughs> you threw it on the ground and then spit on it <laughs> sorry not sorry so yeah. joe what about you i feel like too many bones is a really great game and i think that once it has the perk system it will skyrocket to my favorite game i really feel the lack of that kind of campaign play especially in a game that you know you take three hours to complete and you feel like you're advancing a character and then kind of at the end of it you turn back around and start from the beginning again that's fine like especially if you switch characters but i think if i was going to play the same character over a couple of sessions it would feel a little samey so the perks thing has me extremely excited so i think that will definitely cause it to kind of jump to the top for me i think it's probably king's forge i really like the elegance of the game and the it's, it's really easy to teach and like it's a game that i have had a lot of excess like introducing like non-gamers to the game is pretty straightforward right if you're not like a big analysis person you can just play it and have fun and everything's fine there's a little bit of engine stuff and it's it, but all in all it's kind of light and you 
you won't realize ha- a part way into the game that you've already lost and be like, cool, I can I can just play this game and have fun and see where it goes. It's definitely a game you don't want to take too seriously, but I I really, really like the mechanic of you either spend dice to acquire cards or spend dice to craft things. You have to make a decision on how much you want to gamble on those two things. <coughs> <coughs> Oh God, Frank is dying. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a hairball. I get Sorry, I just really King Swords did not do much for me. And I'm uh, definitely a Too Many Bones fan. I mean, I've played it a lot. And after playing something that is a normal campaign game like well, Gloomhaven or those kind of games, I like the fact that you can play it in one session and you're done and reset it and go for another boss. But even then, as I look at the Kickstarters, billions of Kickstarters I backed, Undertow, which I want to go into like a nerd rage and go, you guys said you were going to ship in June. It's, it's like end of June. It's like July. It's it July now. now. Don't talk to me about shipping for You've ruined things. my life. <laughs> I'm still waiting on Sentinels of Multiverse to ship Oblivion <laughs> like six months later. So don't even talk to me about, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. There's a simple solution to that. Play more Sentinels of the Multiverse. No, to, I, to I was going to say, to I was gonna say stop soothing. caring about Sentinels of the Multiverse. No, nope, wrong, but incorrect. Okay. But Brian, if you stop caring about Sentinels of the Multiverse, what are you going to do when we start playing the Sentinels RPG? I don't think I'm in that game. No, everyone is in that game. Nope. We'll talk nope. later. <laughs> nope. All people are in that game. Everyone. Wow. That's going to be difficult to schedule. Brian can play Haka. It'll be great. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so I I do want to add just a a little bit of variance into this, just to not be crushing on too many bones too much. The one game that we've talked about today that I think I'm most excited to get back to the table is actually going to be Dice Forge. Yeah. Like, we've played that now one time, and I'm like, how could I have done this differently and better? Which, anytime a game can get you thinking like that, that's always good. But just want to give a little bit of love to Dice Forge. Honorable mention. Yeah, I literally bought it the same day that we played it. <laughs> you guys would be amazed, and by you I mean our listeners, you'd be amazed, or maybe not, at how many games are purchased during the recording of a podcast episode for here. It's, it's We all have a problem. Yeah, Dice Forge has that crack thing going for it <laughs> that just, oh my god, I want to play it again. And yeah, Space Space is your other big new crack addiction. Just want to let you know. You heard it here first. <laughs> Space Space, like crack. This episode brought to you by Space Space. And crack. It's like crack. <laughs> if it was meth, it would be blue. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> I feel like we're done here. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. So please come check out our website, which is ascentofboardgames.com, or you can email us at ascentofboardgames at gmail.com. Our Facebook account, because Facebook is weird, is facebook.com slash group slash Ascent Board Games. They don't like the word of in there, apparently. Twitter is Ascent of Games. Uh, apparently, Ascent of Board Games is too long for a Twitter username. We try to be consistent, but the internet won't let us. Discord, though, is discord.ascentofboardgames.com, or you can find us on Instagram, which we don't have much on yet, but we're working on it, at instagram.com slash ascentofboardgames. Those are long and inconsistent and a pain to transcribe, so your best bet is probably just to go to our website, which, once again, is ascentofboardgames.com, and just click on the links there. We've got a poll for what we should do for our next episodes. We've got information on us. You can even see pictures of us and recognize that we all have great faces for podcasting. And um, let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. 
Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentOfBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. Fascinating, 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 fascinating,